The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, what a psalm and what a song and what just a testimony of your faithfulness and greatness that you alone are our only hope and joy and security and peace. And yet we lie to ourselves and we try to turn so many other things in our life into that thing which will ultimately satisfy and protect us. So Lord, forgive us of that. Forgive us for taking our eyes off of you and assuming that we can figure out our way to heaven, that we can live our life outside of your plan, that we can turn our eyes away from you thinking, assuming that we can do it better. Lord, as we get to look at your word, as we get to focus in on Christ once again, just see him in his journeys, in his message, just see the gospel being put on full display. Open our, our hearts, our minds, and our eyes to better see the truth of the gospel. In your name, amen. I would, I would invite you to turn to uh, the gospel of John chapter 5, and as you're going there, um, this is on my heart this morning, so I'm just going to do it. I want to thank all of the volunteers that have served this morning, that serve every Sunday morning. I, I'm just overwhelmed by just the amount of people that it takes to make church happen. I mean, all of these individuals are volunteers, all of our children's ministry, all of our Sunday school teachers, from Garrett making coffee to the sound guy showing up early. Thank you so much for um, doing all that you do so that we can worship Christ um, every Sunday morning. And I will also say, because it's on my heart and mind, if you're not serving and you want to serve and you're looking for a place to serve, we definitely, we need your help because uh, church is the place where all of us serve the rest of us. So thank you if you are a volunteer and we would invite you to join us in service if you're not. Um, John 5, I want to give a disclaimer for the sermon. And the disclaimer is, if you are like me, if you are a planner and a project manager, maybe not by trade, but by personality type, this sermon is going to hurt. Allow me to explain. You didn't have to tell me to make a five-year plan for my life. From the very beginning, I had a five-year plan for my life. Started in high school, even before ministry was a part, I had a five-year plan for my life. When I was like 13, I knew I want to go fly airplanes in the military. That was my five-year plan for my life, and I'm going to set myself up to do that. The problem was I wasn't really smart enough to go fly planes in the military, because as I talked to people who did that and realized it's like the top 1%, realized that's not what I wanted to do. So then I shifted gears and went, okay, I'll think of the next five-year plan for my life. So I said, well, I'll just join the military be in the infantry, blow stuff up. You're kind of seeing where this is going. You know, a guy likes to play with big guns. And then the Lord impressed upon me through a youth pastor of mine and said, hey, Ryan, maybe you should head towards ministry. And immediately, switch gears, five-year plan. I thought, okay, I'm going to go into ministry. And if I have to go into ministry, well, then I, I need an undergrad degree that's going to set me up for that. And Oh, well, I guess while I'm, I am getting an undergrad degree, I should go pursue the girl that I've had a crush on for a long time of my life. She's at that college. I'll go to that college. I'll go to Moody Bible Institute where my now wife, Amy, is studying. So I'll go marry her. I walked onto campus going, I'm going to marry this girl. She's like two years older than me. So the freshman saying that I'm, I'm going to marry a junior. Had a bunch of people roll their eyes at me. I won, got that. Had this whole plan, going to go get undergrad, going to go get the girl, going to go to seminary, going to go, go be a pastor. I had all of these things lined up. Now, I'm not the type of planner that's like the detail planner. 
I don't like have lists and lists and lists of things. I'm not that. I'm big picture planner, but I'm a planner nonetheless. So I had all these plans. This is how life is going to look like. And it was working out until our oldest daughter was a total accident. She came five years too soon. In our plan, she was supposed to come five years into marriage. She came a year and a half into marriage. She was supposed to come at the end of our seminary journey, at the end of my master's journey. Instead, she came at the beginning of it. And I had this crisis moment of what do I do, Lord? My plan kind of fell apart because of my plan, I was going to go pursue my master's degree. And I was going to be a full-time student. My wife was going to work full-time. And we were going to be in Southern California where it cost, so many of you are from Southern California, so much to live, which is why most of you are here now. And I thought, okay, all of these plans, this is how it's going to work out. And in a moment, it all came crashing down because my wife said, hey, I think I'm pregnant. And if we continue in this pursuit, instead of having our oldest child at the end of our seminary journey, you're about to have your oldest child 10, ba- 10 days before your seminary journey starts. That doesn't work. So then instead of her working full time and me not working at all, now it's she's going to be, uh, be a mom at home and I'm going to have to be a full time student and full time work. And how is this all working out? And I had this crisis moment, if you will, because my plans didn't meet up. And I had a great friend on, who looked at me one day and in total love said, why are you trusting in yourself? You're a pastor. Shouldn't you be trusting in God? It hit me like a ton or going to be a pastor. I was like, oh yeah, where does God fit into this plan? Having kids earlier than expected is difficult, but I know that that pales in comparison to some of the struggles that are going on in this room right now. Some of your plans in life have been train wrecked. And some of you out there are planners just like me expecting that I know how to make my life work the best. And so you're constantly pursuing how can I fix my life and get my life to the point where it is happy. Now why I know that? Because we all deal with the same problem. The one problem that all humanity deals with is sin. Now, not all of us say that it's a problem of sin. Some of us say that it's just a problem of evil, but we all know that evil's out there. We all know that there is this thing in our life that doesn't go well because we are all at times overwhelmed by this problem of evil because we all agree that evil exists. I don't care what your understanding of spiritual beliefs are. We all agree we're all fighting against the problem of evil because we see the wars and the tribulations. We deal with the cancer and the death. We have enemies and conflicts. We see these natural disasters and these unforeseen circumstances. So we all agree that there's a problem, but we disagree with how to fix it. Which brings me back to my problem, my issue. I thought that if I could get far enough out ahead of life, if I had enough time to think, of, to think through the problem, that I could fix anything that was thrown my way. That's what I struggle with, planners, right? That's what we struggle with. It's like, give us enough time, we'll figure out how this thing works. But what happens when you're thrown a problem that there is no solution to? That brings us to our text today. This text is dealing with a situation that can't be fixed by human hands. This text is looking at a man who's, who's had not the worst day of his life, but the worst decades of his life. 
Maybe he's a planner like me. Maybe he was trying to figure out how to uh, make things work out. And what we're going to see today in this text is that there comes a point in time, all of us have to go, God, I can't do it. You have to do it. Now, here's what I want to do as we jump into this. Um, Chapter 5 is starting a larger section in the book of John. We are once again shifting scenes. We're shifting locations. Um, And so I want to just kind of describe in big picture what's going on here. Chapter 5 is the shift in the gospel itself. Up to this point, Jesus has been having conversations with individuals where it's, you know, the Samaritan woman or it's the royal official or it's Nicodemus or it's, I mean, I guess the, the wedding of Cana was, was, was a group there, but most of it was more individual focus. Well, in his, the section in the gospel today begins this section where he's going to engage in a more, uh, more uh, corporate groups, but he's also going to start to engage both followers of him, believers in him, and critics of him. And so what we're going to see is that as Jesus begins to address the crowds and the religious authorities around him, he's going to be asking them certain questions, and the questions all come down to this. What are you teaching, and what are you believing in? What are you placing your hope in? What are you trusting in? You see, Jesus is performing certain actions in this section in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, and he's performing certain actions to provoke certain questions and certain discussions. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the sign. We're going to look at the miracle. We're going to look at the action that is going to carry us through the next several weeks is going to carry us through the rest of the chapter because Jesus is going to heal a lame man and the religious authorities are going to come out of nowhere and start to have a lot of questions. So just for today, we're just looking at the miracle itself, but this is going to carry us through the rest of the chapter. Now, here's how I want to deal with this because I've got a lot of material. I'm actually not going to pre-read the chapter. I'm going to go through this section um, and and just read through it and explain some things. We're going to be looking at chapters 5, 1 through 17, um, verses 1 through 17, and you can kind of break this up into three different sections if you want some structure to it. Verses 1 to 5 sets the scene. Where is Jesus going? How did he get here? Verses 6 through 9, it's Jesus' acts. Jesus performs the miracle, and then verses 10 to 17, the crowd responds. Again, those Jews come out of the woodwork and goes, oh boy, why? who are you that can um, heal? So just read with me verses 1 to 5. Says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I'm going to stop. I'm going to kind of talk through this, give some commentary as, as rolling through this. It says a feast. We don't know which feast this is. It could be the feast of the Tabernacles. It could be the feast of um, uh, Passover. It could it could be other feasts. This is actually the only feast in the Gospel of John where John doesn't say this feast. And I think the reason he does that is it doesn't matter which feast. But Jesus went from Galilee to Jerusalem. The other important thing to note is. John's not writing this gospel in chronological order. Like, Jesus did more miracles in, in Galilee than just saving the royal official's son or healing the royal official's son. But John does not telling us about that because for the point of his book, we don't need to know that. We have the, more the chronological history of Jesus in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this, in John, the gospel writer of John is writing now saying, listen, I am... I want to describe to you why Jesus is the Christ and why you can trust in him. So let me tell you the next thing you need to know. So 
Jesus has done other things, but now Jesus is going back down to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, what's going on here with these pools? Well, archaeologists have, have excavated two large pools, roughly about the size of like an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and they, they believe these pools could be up to like 25 feet deep. There was two pools, one located on the north side, one located on the south side. There are these four colonnades around the outsides, one on each corner, and then one in the middle. So it's kind of um, uh, these open-air structures. And these invalids, these lame individuals would come, and they would sit by this pool, and they were there for a specific reason. And you might go, what's the reason? Well, I want you to notice in your Bibles the verses. I don't know about you, but it's been a while since I've been in kindergarten, but I haven't forgotten how to count. It goes one, two, three, five. Where's verse four? Verse four is missing in my Bible. Maybe it's missing in your Bible. Well, verse four is missing for a reason. John, the book of John has some textual variants, some textual issues, the major ones coming up in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. We'll get into more of the details for that one. But yes, verse 4 is missing in your Bible if you're using like an ESV or an ASB. Those are the two main ones where it's, it's missing. And it's because many of the manuscripts, the trusted manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John didn't have verse 4, the end of verse 3, and, and all of verse 4 in them. But verse 4 is important for us because it will explain why these lame individuals are sitting by these pools. So it's probably in the bottom of your Bible somewhere, but here's what it says. So it could read, this is what other um, uh, uh, manuscripts say, probably just describing what's better going on. It could read, there were five roof colonnades in which lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's verse 4. So that gives us, though, a little greater clarity of what's happening here. These pools were fed by Solomon's pool that was by the temple. But the pools were also fed by intermittent hot springs. Because witnesses of that day said that these pools were red. And that red was probably some minerals. I'm not a doctor or a chemist, so I don't know what those minerals would be. But they would, those minerals would have some healing power to them. Think of hot springs today. Like my wife spent time in France as a, as a um, teenager. She went to Vichy, France. And I guess what Vichy, France is known for is these hot springs where th these individuals would go sit in the hot springs for a certain number of minutes or hours a day. And it would uh, prolong their life. So these invalids, these individuals who were struggling with things thought when the, when the springs would start to flow and the water would start to bubble and there was movement in the water, they equated it to the Holy Spirit and then they, would, and they thought the first person to get in the water would be healed. And what we see is there's been a guy who has been lame for 38 years and who knows how long he's been sitting beside this pool waiting to get in the water thinking that if I can be the first person in, I can walk away from here, here healed. Think for a moment if he was like a planner like myself. I don't know how this guy became lame. Doesn't say, doesn't matter. But let's assume for a minute he wasn't born lame. Maybe it was a disease. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was, I don't know. 
And he thought for his life all 38 years, I think I can figure this out. Maybe he wasn't from Jerusalem and he thought, if I just get to Jerusalem, if I just get to these pools, if I can just get into the water, I can heal myself. I can make my life better. And for 38 years, every day he wakes up knowing my life is not better. When am I going to be able to fix this? When can I get what I want? And what do you want? You just want to be able to walk. I mean, it is a picture of hopelessness. And in comes Jesus. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, I love Jesus' question sometimes, do you want to be healed? You think? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while I am going. Another steps down before me. What I love is that this man, Jesus, the creator of the world, the healer. I mean, the picture here of the great physician walking in the midst of the most miserable people in Jerusalem at the time. This is where all, this was like the, the, the handicap ward of Jerusalem because they were all by the pool, all waiting to heal themselves. The great physician, the creator of the world, the person who clearly can speak and heal everyone is walking in the midst and comes up to this particular man. Why this man doesn't say, God picks this man, has been there 38 years and goes, do you want to be healed? Of course, that's why he's there. That's why he's waiting. That's why he's been planning. That's why he's asked his friends, carry me there and lay me there so that when the water stirs up, I can heal myself. But look and see what he, he says. Instead of going, are you the Messiah? Can you heal me? Clearly he doesn't know and see who Jesus is. He goes back to his plan of action. Yeah, I need somebody to pick me up and put me in the water first. Here's the other way you could translate that. I can't figure out how to save myself. My plan doesn't seem to work. Do you want to help me? Can you pick me up the next time the water moves? Well, evidently this man was hoping Jesus would help him get into the water at the appropriate time through his plan, but Jesus had a very different plan. He says, no, the water's not necessary. What did it say? Get up, take your bed, and walk. The man has been laying next to a pool thinking that what would heal him is to get into the water first. And who knows how many times that water stirred and he thought, oh, I didn't get there fast enough and had that another level of disappointment. And Jesus walks into his life and says, get up, take your bed and walk. And what's it say? And at once, immediately, without waiting, without anything else, the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. If we stopped right there, we go, man, that's, that's so cool. That's such an amazing miracle. God can heal a lame man. But as I said, this sign, this miracle is given to us to demonstrate something far superior to Jesus has the power to heal a lame man. Jesus is using this to call into question the, the teaching of the day. This healing was not calling into question the superstition of the water. Jesus doesn't care about that. He spends no time debunking this whole thing. He doesn't step up and goes, well, actually, it's not a hot springs. It can't do that. And your issue can't be healed medically through these things. So what you need is, he doesn't care about that. No, what Jesus cares about is the superstition of the religion of the day. And here's why. Because in the next section, 
That superstition, that thing that everyone is trusting in is called into question and is going to lead us through the rest of the chapter. You see, there was a problem with this healing. And it wasn't that a lame man began to walk. It was the day that the healing took place. Because this lame man who for 38 years could not pick up his bed on his own and walk on his own was commanded to walk and he at once was healed and he picked up his bed and walked. But that day was the Sabbath day. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, uh, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to get to take up your bed. Who said for you to take up your bed? But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they said to him, well, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as, a, as there was a crowd in that place. So now we have this interesting scene. The desperate man who had sat next to a pool for how long is now being confronted that he got up from that pool and carrying his bed. Think back to where I started at the beginning of the sermon. I said that we all agree that there's a problem of evil. We all agree that there's a problem of sin. We all agree that this world is broken and something needs to happen. But what we disagree on is the solution to that problem. But the Jews... The Jews of this day had a very clear solution to the problem of evil, to the problem of sin. Their solution was this. Obey all of the Old Testament laws. Very simple, right? We're going to obey all the Old Testament laws. They were very clear on it and they were very strict on it. You are going to obey all of the Old Testament laws and mainly the Ten Commandments. Now, Obeying the Ten Commandments is all well and good. It is a good thing because that is how God created us to live, is to obey the Ten Commandments. But as broken individuals, it, it is very difficult for us to obey the Ten Commandments. But the Jews realized the difficulty of this, and they thought, we not only want to obey the Ten Commandments, or we understand that we have to obey them so well, we need to protect against breaking them. So let's put a hedge of protection around God's law so that we not only don't break the Ten Commandments, but we don't break the commandments that protect against the Ten Commandments. They had observed the problem before them. The problem was sin. And what they said was, we're going to make a plan to make sure that our life turns out all right. And the way that we're going to make sure that our life turns out all right is by keeping all of the commandments. Now, the commandment that is called into question here is the fourth commandment. Keep the Sabbath holy. Some commandments in the Ten Commandments are pretty easy. Do not murder. Don't kill people. That's a very black and white thing. He's dead. He's not dead. Don't, don't commit murder. Don't steal. Again, black and white. Was that yours? No, it was not. Give that back. That's called stealing. But keep the Sabbath holy. It's a little more vague. So they thought in order to not break the Sabbath law, let's add some additional laws around it. In fact, they added 38 additional laws or 38 laws that I found. And these, so when these Jews saw this no-name man walking around with his bed for the first time in 38 years on Saturday when he's not supposed to do that. They question them, who told you to break the Sabbath laws? Sir, you are sinning. You are jeopardizing your righteousness before God. Now, I want to add some weight to this. I want to kind of layer upon the offense that, that, they, that the, these Jews had against this man for breaking the Sabbath by highlighting several of the additional laws that Jews add to the Sabbath. As I said, these are 38 additional laws that are, that, that it's like a hedge around the actual law, keep the Sabbath holy. 
And these laws are still in existence today, did not make them up. And these are my favorites that I have read about this week as I've studied for this passage. So think about it. When it says, do not break the Sabbath, here's one way that you shouldn't break the Sabbath. You should not look into a mirror. Looking into a mirror on the Sabbath is forbidden. Why? Well, the rationale for that is that if you look into a mirror on Saturday and you saw that you had a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it, thus performing work on the Sabbath, because I guess pulling hairs is work. I don't know. Anyone with false teeth? Well, you shouldn't wear your false teeth on Saturday because if they fell out, you would be forced to pick them up off the ground. And if you pick them up off the ground, you would be performing work and thus break the Sabbath. Now, many of these laws are obscure. Like, I found this one. You could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear a handkerchief. So here's how you get around that one. If you wanted to carry a handkerchief or you, if you needed a handkerchief, if you, uh, that meant if you were upstairs in your house and you wanted to take a handkerchief downstairs, instead of holding it in your hand or putting it in your pocket, you had to tie it around your neck, walk downstairs and then untie it in order to not break the Sabbath. If you want to spit, you could spit on the Sabbath. You could spit on the Sabbath. That was, you know, it's gross to spit. But if you want to spit on the Sabbath, you could. But you had to be careful where you spit. Because if you spit on the dirt and then you scuffed it with your sandal, you would be cultivating the soil, thus performing work, thus breaking the Sabbath. It gets fun. I've got two more. This one might be my, my favorite. Like, there's, there's a lot of jokes around this one. The next one is the most, is the most ridiculous in my opinion. And I, I don't... If, I, I, I love our Jewish friends. They still follow this. I'm sorry, they have to be this strict. This debate actually happened. A debate about a man with a wooden leg. Not a joke. If his house caught on fire, could he carry his wooden leg out of the house on the Sabbath because he would be carrying wood? My other question is, could he even wear his wooden leg on the Sabbath? Because if he's wearing it, he's clearly got to pick it up. So that could be carrying wood. Now, this is the longest one. This is one that um, I've got a story that goes with it. Because traveling was forbidden on the Sabbath, a journey was limited to 1,000 yards. And if you wanted to extend your walk, you had to tie a rope at the end of your street as much as 1,000 yards away. Then you could walk 1,000 yards further because you extended your household by 1,000 yards. I read that this week, and it reminded me of a story that I heard on NPR a while ago. So I did some research, and I found it. This is a story. You should go listen to the full story. It's quite fascinating. It's called The Fishing Line Encircles Manhattan, Protecting Sanctity of the Sabbath. Here's the story. Part of the story. A clear fishing wire is tied around the island of Manhattan. It's attached to posts around the perimeter of the city from 1st Street to 126th. This string is a part of the Eruv, a Jewish symbolic enclosure. Most people walking on the streets of Manhattan do not notice it at all. But many observant Jews in Manhattan rely on the string to leave the house on the Sabbath. The concept of the Eruv was established almost 2,000 years ago to allow Jews to, move re to allow Jews to more realistically follow the laws of the Sabbath, particularly one. No carrying on the Sabbath. According to the laws of Sabbath rest, nothing can be carried from the domestic zone into the public zone on Saturday, which means no carrying house keys or a wallet. It also means no pushing baby strollers. So for parents of young children, no carrying would mean not leaving the house on Saturday. The Eruv symbolically extends the domestic zone into the public zone, permitting activities within it that would normally be forbidden to observant Jews on the Sabbath. 
They spent more time trying to make sure they don't break the Sabbath, and it's ridiculous. So if you overlay the weight of man-made laws onto this scene, and you see this individual who has just been healed, allowed to walk and carry his own bed for the first time in 38 years, and you see these Jews walk up to him and say, sir, it is the Sabbath, it is Saturday, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, who told you that you can do that? You would think this guy would go, the man who healed me, he has more power. But he didn't. He goes, well, he told me to take up my bed and walk, so I obeyed him. He goes, who is this man? He says, oh, I don't know, because he got away from me. And he's kind of left saying, I guess I'll lay back down for the day. Well, the scene continues. 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were, were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. First, what I love about this scene is that this man, when he's confronted by the thought of him sinning, he's not sinning, he's carrying a bed, who cares? He pulls the exact same card that Adam pulled in the garden. Nothing new under the sun. Uh, I, I, I didn't sin, it was the man made me sin. Adam, I didn't sin, the woman made me sin. And then when he's pressed further, who, who made you do this? He goes, I don't know. He, he drifted away. I'm not sure. And it's almost like if I see him again, I'll let you know. Well, Jesus comes and finds him. And the last words to this man are very simple. See, you are well. You can walk. You can carry. You made it from the pool to the temple. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. It's always interesting when Jesus tells people to sin no more because it's like he's setting them up for failure. I could tell you today, Christian, it is better to stop sinning. And all of you are going to go, I know. And we're all going to keep sinning. And so often in our Christian lives, we think that actually is the message of the gospel. And it's not the message of the gospel of go and sin no more. Because if it was the message of the gospel, we'd be setting everyone up for failure because we, none of us can stop sinning. So why is Jesus looking at this man and saying, sin no more? It made me think, what is the sin that Jesus is talking about? Well, here's what commentators have said, and I agree with. The sin that Jesus is talking about is stop trusting in your own ways and start trusting in me. This man sat by a pool and was trusting in his own plans, in his own procedures, in his own applications, thinking if I can just get the right ingredients in life, I will be good with God. And Jesus comes up, doesn't care about anything, and goes, no, walk and you will be well. Now he finds him again in the temple and goes, don't make the same mistake. Don't start trusting again in your own works. Don't start running after those man-made things thinking that's what's going to make you better. Go and sin no more, i.e., trust me. Makes me think of Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. 
Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and a refreshment to your bones. I think one way you could interpret this is Jesus saying, sir, are you gonna trust me in my way? Or are you gonna run back to the superstitious religion of the day that tells you to not pick up certain, to not wear a wooden leg on Saturday because it could be work? Who are you gonna trust in? That's really the question that's being called in. Who are you going to trust in? So what is this superstitious religion that I'm referring to? I actually think we struggle with the exact same thing as first century Jews did. No, we don't care about fishing lines surrounding our houses and all of the list of things that I just said, but we do have a lot of superstitions around religion. But the way we do it is we equate moralism with salvation. Here's what we struggle with. We think that moralism is the crutch that we can lean upon and naively assure ourselves that we are good with God. Moralism is that thing that we can look at ourselves in the mirror and go, I'm a good person, therefore God must love me. It is a crutch that we, that we can lean upon to assure ourselves that we are good with God. We equate moralism and moral goodness with spiritual righteousness. We equate a cautious and diligent life for protection from pain and struggle. I could say it this way. How many of you heard the, the phrase, if you read your Bible and you pray every day, it will go well with you. How many of you think, parents, that if you can just get your kid into church and if you can just get your kid into youth group, then they will grow up to be good people? How many of us struggle to think that Jesus, if we add Jesus to our life, our life will be easier? That's all that crutch of using God for the wrong things, this superstition of if, if I can be a good person on the outside, if I can look like I am following all of the laws, then God is going to be happy with me. You know, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. You should read your Bible and pray every day. That's a good thing. You should go to church and be in youth group. That's a good thing. You should add Jesus to your life and he is going to give you wisdom. And so, yeah, it could make parts of life easier. But if the root of that is moralism, if the reason you're doing all of those things is so that God will be happy with you, you've missed the point. That's why when Jesus says, sir, you are well. None of the other things you trusted and worked. Sin no more. Don't trust in those. Trust in me so that nothing bad will happen to you any longer. The gospel speaks directly against our normal operating procedure as humans. It goes against normal logic because how we are wired naturally is um, I receive what I earn. How we're wired naturally is I have to work hard to get what I deserve. The gospel flips all of that on its head. It's 1 Corinthians 1.8, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why? Because the gospel steps in and says, it's not what you do, it's what you believe. It's not what you've done, it's what he's done. It's not who you are, it's who Christ is and that we trust in that. I mean, grace, this is a sermon that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna preach this one, one day soon because it's boiling up inside of me. Grace is messy and difficult in life. Grace makes life messy and difficult. You know what's easiest? Either just rejecting the law entirely, being antinomian, throwing it all out, saying you, you can live however you want, 
or living the law fully like the Jews and saying you have to follow all of the steps and if you don't, you're going to hell. Grace steps in the middle and says you don't have to and you shouldn't. It's, I mean, our life is filled with these things of like, do I have to live a perfect life? No. Do I have to fight sin? No. Should I? Yes, absolutely. But that's a sermon for another time. Again, this guy is starting this whole discussion. We're about to launch into the Jews going hardcore against Jesus. Who are you to tell us that our religion is stupid? Who are you to break our laws? Who are you to step in and say that they, we don't actually have to follow the 38 extra Sabbath laws that, are, that we've surrounded Scripture? But that is for next week and the following weeks. But I want to wrap up this guy's story, this lame man who was healed. You know, it's kind of easy to think that. Every person that Jesus physically healed, he also spiritually healed. I don't think that's the case. I don't think this guy got it. He was healed, physically healed. I don't think he was spiritually healed. I don't think he believed. Know why? Because after Jesus comes to him in the temple and says, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What's this man do? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. He threw him under the bus. He made sure that he was on the good side of the Jews instead of on the good side of Jesus. He was scared. I get it. He's looking at his life and the culture around him. He's like, ooh, I better obey them and listen to them. And they say that I need to tell them on whose authority I'm breaking the law. I mean, this is kind of saying, don't be mad at me, be mad at him. But because of it, again, as we'll see, Jesus gets to launch into the Jewish rulers and authorities and describe to him and say, here's why I have the authority to change your laws. Because I made you and everything in the world. But that's next week. I want to come back to my fellow planners and project managers and those people who are trying to control their life, like myself. I don't know what curveballs the Lord has thrown at you. And I know there are many curveballs in this room. And it's so easy for us to think that we, if we just go back to the drawing board, we can come up with the right mixture of things to fix it. Maybe what the Lord is doing is taking you to a point when you have to throw your hands up and go, you're in control, not me. That's tough. And it's a whole lot tougher than saying, I don't know how we're gonna pay our bills in seminary when we have a new baby. That's easy. Some of the situations in this room, it's tough. But here's what I know. God is faithful. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. And he will be gracious to you in your weakness so you can run to him. So we turn towards communion this morning as we do every week here at Community. It's a moment as, as a family, as a body that we can gather around the communion table. Maybe you're here for the first time or maybe you're here for multiple times. And, and, and this whole Christian thing is you're still suspect who is this Christ dude and you haven't placed your faith in Christ. I would ask that you just let the elements pass you by. They don't save you. What we're doing as a body, as this family meal is reminding ourselves that our savior is not in the works of our hands. It's not in our flesh and blood, but it is in Christ's. 
And so if you're here and you're questioning those things, I'd love to talk to you more about what's going on here. But if, you, if you're here and you're, you are a believer, partake in this meal because it is a reminder that we take every week that stops us in our tracks, that makes us acknowledge that the reason that we are good before God is not because we've kept any set of laws or we've done any necessary steps, but is because Christ did everything that was required and he satisfied God's wrath for our sin. Let's pray. We can take the table together. Lord, we so easily run to moralism. We so easily want to be able to look at our accomplishments to say, look what I've done. You should be happy with me. And in those moments when stuff's on our life is broken, we so much want to figure out how to fix it. And yet, Lord, sometimes you don't want it to be fixed immediately. Sometimes the lesson that's to be learned in the moment is that you are sovereign and good and we can trust in you. Lord, for anyone who is struggling this morning, struggling with a problem that they can't untangle, they can't find the solution, Lord, help them to look outside of the solutions of this world, outside of themselves, and look to you. Help them to rest in the truth of Scripture and the hope of eternity. Yeah, this world is a broken place, a painful place. And yet we long for those days when we are in heaven, when tears will be no more, when pain and suffering are gone, when loss and disappointment will not be a part of that, of that place. And Lord, help that hope that we have for heaven to just spur us on for another day living for you. Father, just be with us now. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.